Hi, everyone. I'm Salma Karashi. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neuroscience Research Podcast. Today is April 30th, 2021, and we're talking with Sergio Ferreira, who is Professor of Biophysics and Neuroscience at the Center for Health Sciences at the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro. He's also uh, Director of Strategic Partnerships and International Relations at the DOR Institute for Research and Teaching. Hi, Sergio. Hey, Salma. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. So Sergio's research program takes uh, a biochemical lens to investigate mechanisms of Alzheimer's disease across progressive scales of analysis through behavior to identify and test potential disease-modifying therapies. His work, his recent work targets uh, brain protein synthesis and degradation pathways to restore defective synaptic plasticity and memory in animal models of Alzheimer's disease. So joining us in the circle, we've got two of our ranking Alzheimer's specialists. We've got Hyunggan Lee, who everybody has met before. Hi, Hyunggan. Hi. And we've got Chris Gamlin, who is new faculty, new senior member of our faculty, who's a, a tau polymerization specialist. Hi, Chris. Hello there. So I find, I'm thinking about where to start. I just, I thought this idea of, of of studying Alzheimer's as a pathology of proteostasis just is so intriguing and inclusive of so many of the different and sometimes competing areas in the field. So proteostasis itself is, uh, is a massive space um, that concerns regulation of protein biogenesis, folding, trafficking, uh, and its degradation within and outside the cell. It also just, it's, it seems really critical here that it bridges the divide from biochemistry to getting at the dynamics of behavior by directly determining the structure and function of synapses and therefore the memory networks um, and the cognitive networks that are impaired in, a in AD. And that seems to be a really important leap that I don't know that we've discussed really, we've gotten into sort of that meta level and integrative level here in the podcast series yet. So, um, Sergio, could you start us off by saying something about the clues in the AD brain that have led to this idea of a, of a pathology of proteostasis and introduce some of your work, maybe defining how um, A-beta oligomers uh, impact proteostasis to get us into it? Sure, Selma. So the, the point you raised is a very good one. So uh, I, I would say the initial clues as to uh, why uh, defects in proteostasis are uh, implicated in Alzheimer's uh, came from the original work by Alloy Alzheimer himself um, more than 100 years ago. So in 1906, as we know, uh, uh, Alloy Alzheimer uh, described the report uh, of his first patient, uh, Augusta D, uh, who had uh, been under his care uh, in, in Germany for a number of years, and she had this very profound form of dementia, an early onset form of dementia. She was still in her 50s when she first uh, was admitted into the uh, Frankfurt Asylum, uh, where uh, uh, Alzheimer uh, worked back then. And uh, so what uh, Alzheimer found in, by inspecting her brain after she passed away was that there were these massive clumps uh, in the brain uh, both extracellular and intracellular clumps that he didn't really know what they were made of, of course, but he, he described them as abnormal uh, pathological uh, hallmarks of her, in her brain. And then it took about 80 years for us to begin uh, discover, understanding really what those 
deposits or, or, or uh, plaques were made of. So initially it was found that uh, the extracellular aggregates are made up of this peptide called amyloid beta, which aggregates and forms these large deposits in the brain, uh, outside neurons. And then uh, at about the same time or a little after, we discovered that uh, the intracellular uh, aggregates or, or intracellular inclusions were made up of another protein, which is Chris's uh, favorite protein, I think, uh, tau, uh, which uh, when hyperphosphorylated, uh, aggregates and form these um, large aggregates called tangles. Uh, so clearly, because we see these large deposits of proteins that should not be there, there was something wrong with degradation of proteins. And degradation is the end point of a protein's lifetime. So that's the equivalent to a protein's death when it's finally degraded by a cell. And uh, these uh, two clues, which go back more than 100 years to Alzheimer's original uh, work, uh, told us very uh, clearly that there were defects in degradation of protein in, in the end portion of proteostasis. Now, on the other hand, the other uh, important set point is uh, the beginning of the life of a protein, its birth, or uh, protein synthesis uh, at the ribosome. And we know from work, lots of work has been done by, mem by memory specialists, not people devoted to Alzheimer's necessarily, but people looking at basic biology of memory, how memories are formed and, and stored, uh, it has been known for quite a while now that protein synthesis is an essential requirement for memory consolidation. So clearly protein synthesis, the beginning of, of the life of a protein is essential for memory, which is disrupted in Alzheimer's. So we figure there should be a biochemical connection, a direct biochemical connection between those two things. So in terms of the idea of proteostasis, I mean, I have to admit, I'm fairly ignorant and I didn't necessarily learn about this in terms of these like integrated networks, like for example, the integrated stress, or is it the, the ISR, the integrated stress response, which is this whole series of interconnected, I mean, I, I'm actually not sure what it is, but I know it's, it's, it's incredibly important and it's, there, there are tools and assays to measure it and look at it and what happens in, in various Alzheimer's models. Um, can you say something about how we are now able to study proteostasis and when that change happened? Because it seems like every paper now has some component of ISR and like it's almost as though it's like the final common pathway in some ways um, for so many kinds of dysfunctions. So can you say something about that? Yeah, sure. So I think the ISR is a really key uh, uh, focal point of a cell's life, uh, indeed, because that's the way cells respond to the environment. And by, by actually not only to the external environment, but also to the internal, to changes in the internal environment and what goes on in the, within the cell. And so, it traverses biosynthesis and degra degradation. It sort of yeah. kind of connects. So, so when we uh, think about a cell, let's think about what's going on right now during the COVID-19 pandemic. Our cells are being attacked by this virus. And uh, in, for some individuals, for some cell types, the virus will be able to actually infect the cell and get into the cell. So once the, the, the virus is recognized as being within the cell, how does the cell react? Is it going to lead its normal life? No. The virus is going to try to take hold of the protein synthesis machinery to make its own proteins, 
in order to make more copies of the virus and spread to the rest of the organism. On the other hand, our cells react or respond by recognizing that viral infection, that the presence of the virus as a stress, a form of stress, which activates a specific kinase, which we've been looking at called PKR, which is double-stranded RNA-dependent um, kinase. And uh, that's just one of the several kinases that's part of this uh, protective system, which senses the environment and tries to respond to make the cell respond in specific ways to prevent further damage. So when the cell is infected by a virus, what, what should the cell do? Try to stop protein synthesis because that will stop the virus from replicating. And that's what we do with the aid of PKR, for example, with this particular kinase. Now, uh, if there is a lack of nutrients, lack of amino acids, the same should happen. I mean, the cell should shut down its global protein synthesis and focus only on those few proteins, which are really essential at that time, at that point in time, to make it, um, to enable it to face the challenge of uh, nutrient uh, deprivation. What happens, for example, uh, if there is a form of stress uh, that uh, either heat or whatever, there's, there are heat shock response proteins in other cell forms that respond to heat stress. There, there's all sorts of stress trigger specific responses in, cell, in cells. And uh, these, these uh, responses are uh, executed or effect, the effectors are kinases proteins that go on and phosphorylate target proteins to either promote or shut down specific processes. So it's really a key uh, network of, of kinases that orchestrate this stress response in cells. So Hyungan, both you and Sergio have worked on, on um, AD as a metabolic disorder of the brain, specifically that the cognitive impairments could be related to a state of, um, of brain insulin resistance or brain diabetes, I guess. Sergio, your work has posed that these, that presumably ISR, that this neuronal stre stress signaling via um, EIF2 alpha, one of the, the these, these factors, which is like, uh, I presume a regulating factor for the ISR within the ISR, maybe you can help situate us, that this is a molecular link between Alzheimer's and diabetes. It sort of connects the two. Um, can you say something about that and connect us into metabolic stuff as well and, and where that's situated in all of this? Yeah, this is a very interesting point. I think one in which Yongong may, may wish to add something, something as well, but uh, what we've been seeing uh, in, in our studies uh, for the past, uh, 15 years or so, is that uh, uh, glucose metabolism is affected in, in Alzheimer's, but especially insulin signaling is affected in, in AD brains. And not only in, in actual human AD brains, but also in several experimental models of AD, which allows us to study those mechanisms in more detail than what you can expect to be able to, to study in a, in a post-mortem human brain, for example. So because we are able to recapitulate this insulin resistance that goes on in actual AD brains in vitro in the lab or in experimental animals in the lab as well, then we can study those. And what we found is that uh, not only uh, insulin receptors are uh, internalized in neurons exposed to beta ligamers, so that's one of the key points because if, you, if the receptor is no longer at the membrane, how can insulin possibly signal to that neuron? But in addition to that, and uh, we find that the intracellular pathway that's activated by the insulin receptor is also downregulated. 
So really, it's a, it's kind of a a, a, a dual attack on insulin signaling. Uh, not only the receptor is downregulated, which is already uh, quite an impediment to, to signaling, but the downstream signaling pathway uh, inside the cells, inside neurons, is also downregulated or, or inhibited. So, and we think that has a lot to do with memory and how uh, memory uh, gets dysfunctional in, in Alzheimer's. So that is super interesting because it seems like a lot of the discussion that we've had over the years surrounding Alzheimer's disease has, has hinged on some of the disconnects or some of the contentiousness between the different types of animal models and which one is really capitulated, I mean, or how artificial are they and how much are they really aligning with the, the true syndrome? It seems like looking at being able to assay in detail the sort of biochemical network that's surrounding perhaps this ISR, perhaps other types of, of coordinated networks could be a way to sort of assess and align some of these things and, and sort of organize some of these animal models. Is there any, are there any thoughts about that? Or yeah, I, of course, one needs animal models to be able to really tease out the mechanisms um, for any disease, including Alzheimer's disease. And I think well, there's only so much you can expect to gain in terms of mechanistic information by looking at, at actual post-mortem brain. So you can probably do correlations, uh, associate, uh, by biochemical alterations in the brain, but there's, it's hard, if, if possible, if at all possible, to really establish a causal relationship between something that you see in the Alzheimer's brain and the outcome, memory uh, deficits, because you, you never know whether that's really causal, or whether it's an epic phenomenon, or a consequence of an underlying uh, pathological mechanisms. Now, in, in animal models, we can, we can study those in much more details. So we need those. The, the main crit criticism, I think, for the uh, most of the existing animal models, uh, largely mouse models for, for Alzheimer's, is that most of them are based on, on uh, genetic uh, mutations, which uh, are found in familial cases for Alzheimer's disease. And the, the, the critic is that um, these, um, these familial forms of AD do not comprise 5% of all AD cases. They're less than 5%. The vast majority of AD cases are those which we call sporadic AD. And it is quite possible that there is some genetic inheritance involved and there are some genetic risk factors known. Uh, APOE, for example, the uh, epsilon-4 allele of APOE is the main uh, risk factor known for that, but there are other risk factors as well, including those involved in an inflammatory response in microglia, for example, uh, uh, in, in, which have been uh, discovered in recent years. But the, the, the point is that these mutations only affect really a small proportion of the AD cases. And, and thus, by studying a genetically modified mouse that has those familial AD um, mutations, what we're actually looking, if we think about it more strictly, is at what may be happening in the familial AD brains, uh, not in the sporadic AD brains. And that's why I think a few years ago, we invested some effort into developing this more acute model, which has its drawbacks, I admit. It's not a, it's not a very progressive model. You know, damage takes place over uh, 
the course of 24 hours, you can already see memory impairment. But what we do with the model that we developed is inject uh, into the uh, brain ventricles uh, a preparation, a very well-characterized preparation of soluble A-beta oligomers. Uh, so there are no plaques, there are, there's no amyloid fibrils in there. It's just soluble species. Uh, and we inject those, uh, those uh, oligomers at a very low amount, in a very low amount, like really in the picomole range. And that tiny amount of A-beta oligomers is sufficient to induce most of the pathological features of Alzheimer's, including tau hyperphosphorylation, brain, ox brain oxidative stress, which is something that Jungon has been has worked a bit in the past as well, quite a lot, and, and insulin uh, uh, resistance, you know, all sorts of pathological features that we find in the actual AD brain are induced by this tiny amount of A-beta oligomers that we inject into, into mind's brain. And, and the most important, they uh, exhibit memory impairment as well. So it is a, a rel relatively quick and easy way to induce what we think is sort of an acute form of Alzheimer's uh, that we generate in the lab. And I think that's a, a good model. Uh, we have been investing in collaboration with colleagues in Canada at Queen's University, uh, again, uh, Fernando de Felici and Doug Munoz from Queen's University. We have been investing uh, some effort in the development of a, a non-human primate model for Alzheimer's as well, which brings you know, considerable advantages in terms of brain complexity, of course. Because as we know, monkeys have, their brains are much closer to our own brain than a mouse brain. So by studying how these monkeys react to a beta ligamers infused into their brains, we can also uh, gain closer knowledge of what's going on in our own brains when uh, our brains get filled up by ligamers. So I, I was just wondering how much is known about the diversity of adult structures um, and you, you know I mean can you define adult structures um, the, the, the acronym uh, I wrote amyloid diffusible ligands um, and, and so the the ligomeric form I mean is, is there much known about the, the actual molecular structure of those and, and is there much diversity? In, in Alzheimer's disease, either within a patient or between patients? And does that change the activity? That's a very uh, good and very complicated question, Chris. So uh, when, uh, when Bill Klein first uh, uh, developed this procedure to prepare these ligamers, he uh, called them adults for A-beta-derived diffusible ligands to really stress the fact that they are diffusible, they're soluble, they can really diffuse within the brain. Now, uh, most generally, they are known as A-beta ligamers in the literature. So we, we basically refer to them as ligamers to really try to distinguish them from fibrils. So they are not amyloid. The name of the peptide happens to be amyloid, but it could be anything else. But it, it, historically, it was named amyloid because it was isolated from amyloid deposits in blood vessels and in the blood in the brain parenchyma. So that's how it was discovered. So it was named after the amyloid plaques. So it makes sense, of course, but the, 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 the oligomers are not amyloid. They do not have the, the cross beta sheet structure that you find uh, in long amyloid 
fibrils and the long polymers that are amyloid fibrils. So they do not bind, uh, for example, thioflavin T, which is the classical uh, fluorescent marker for amyloids. They either don't bind or they bind at very low level uh, thioflavin T. In, if you run a gel in a Western blot, you find that they range in the preparations that we use, which follow the original client recipe, uh, uh, we, we find that, uh, for, that those oligomers range from dimers all the way to maybe 20 formers, but nothing bigger than that. There are other groups that report uh, oligomer preparations containing much larger oligomers, like in the 500 kilodalton range, uh, which would be about maybe four or five times larger than what we have. And, and in addition to that, there is diversity, as you mentioned. So even in uh, an in vitro pre preparation of, uh, of oligomers has at least two broad classes of species, what we call the, the low molecular mass oligomers and the high molecular mass oligomers. So the low would be dimers, trimers, tetramers, which many groups have shown to be very active at synapses and to exert really profound detrimental effects on neurons. And, and a lot has been published on, on small oligomers, dimers and trimers and tetramers. We tend to, to find in our studies that in our hands at least, the larger molecular mass species are more toxic. So typically, um, and those are also very abundant in the AD brain. You can also find lower molecular mass species in AD brain, but it has been uh, reported by several groups that 80 brains contain this uh, species that's the 12 mer of 54 kilodalton, which was originally termed a beta uh, star 56 for 56 molecular weight, because that's where it appears to, on a Western blot. Uh, and so this a beta star oligomer is, has been shown to be quite abundant in 80 brains. And we find, um, we actually developed a, a specific antibody a few years ago uh, in collaboration with Bill Klein, uh, and we published this, I think, three, four years ago in the Journal of Neurochemistry, uh, where we, we, found, we developed this um, single-chain antibody that specifically reacts with a high molecular weight uh, fraction of the oligomers, and it completely abolishes toxicity. So we think that although oligomers exist in different flavors, maybe those uh, 12-mers or so are the most toxic to synapses. Hi, Sergio. So, like you just mentioned that, you know, there are, I think there's still debate is actively going on that, you know, which one is actually uh, really important, you know, species in the oligomeric A-beta, like A-beta star 56 or, you know, dimer. And then I think you're finding, like you just said, that, you know, your, 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 your research basically indicating that the high molecular weight, like, you know, uh, A-beta star 56 is more important than the dimeric form. But would it be possible that, like, you know, uh, like you showed in your research clearly, the high molecular weight organic A better may be uh, related with more with like a proteostasis or some toxicity. But in, in, at the same time, like they said, Dennis Selko group to uh, show that multiple times, like maybe dimeric protein is causing some other neural dysfunction in some different way, not exactly the way you did. So it's going to be more, you know, mechanism. And we all know that it's more complicated. So maybe that's kind of 
kind of can we can explain that why that you know we are kind of even though just oligomer we are debating of which one is more important and which one is actually toxic molecule here i think that's a great point you know because uh, you know as a biochemist i've always been very much intrigued about uh, this uh, biochemical diversity of species that chris alluded to and to what which of those species uh, could be more toxic and whether they all have the same toxicity or whether maybe one of them is more toxic to, to a certain uh, particular uh, outcome and the other induces certain other things. So coming from a biochemical uh, training, one thing we did in a paper we published in 2013 was to separate oligomers into two large fractions by HPLC. So we separated the high and the low molecular weight species by HPLC, and then we infused them separately into mouse brains. And, and we looked at what happened. So it was intriguing because uh, when we did this experiment and looked at, uh, at what happened to synapses by doing immunohistochemical analysis uh, of synapses, of looking for a marker of the presynaptic terminal, synaptophysin, we uh, found that only the low molecular weight species affected uh, um, the presynaptic marker that we looked at, synaptophysin, uh, in a persistent manner. So if you infuse mice with uh, a preparation that does not contain a beta-56 star, for example, but contains dimers, trimers, and tetramers, you actually damage synapses. If, on the other hand, you infuse uh, mice or you treat neurons in vitro with uh, uh, the high molecular weight fraction, above 50 kilodalton, then what you find is not a structural damage to synapses, but inhibition of memory, which can be reversed actually by memantin, which is the drug that we know is the only drug that's still available, that was introduced in for Alzheimer's in the past 20 years, and, uh, and induces oxidative stress through NNDA receptors, through, through the activation of NNDA receptors. So I think that actually both both small and high molecular uh, mass uh, uh, species are active. Uh, it, it kind of depends on what you're looking at. If you want a more acute impact, probably the high molecular weight species will show you that because they affect receptors directly like the NMDA receptor. If you're looking for more long lasting changes, maybe the, the smaller oligomers will be more uh, so active. So you're differentiating these based on the, this is actually based on the, the extracellular interaction, the two species. So they, one of them interacts directly extracellularly with the NMDA receptor because the localization you showed was completely dendritic, right? So it's, I mean, it was parasomatic. Yeah. So the assumption is that there's something about the synapse that these, these. Sure. This is like the, you know, a hundred billion dollar question, I think that you're asking Salma because uh, what is the receptor? If we, if we learn what the actual receptor for a beta is in the brain, we'll cure Alzheimer's because we can come up with drugs to really block that interaction and, and probably cure it. The, the problem is that each group publishes a different receptor. So in my group, for example, we, uh, we believe the NMDA receptor is very much involved in, the, uh, in triggering most uh, of the responses induced by, by A beta, specifically by A beta ligamers. On the other hand, we ourselves published uh, not too far ago 
that another uh, postsynaptic protein called neuroligand is also a receptor for, for abatal ligaments. And interestingly, this, I think two days ago in Nature Neuroscience, there was a paper showing, which really uh, I love when I, when, I, when I read it, because they show that the NMDA receptor, neuroligand and CAM kinase 2, which is a kinase that is deeply involved in the regulation of synaptic function and NMDA receptor uh, responses, mediative responses, they all uh, coalesce, they form a, a, a condensed uh, in a liquid phase, in one of these liquid phases that has been, that have been shown to, to exist. They're not really organelles in the sense that they are not separated by a membrane from the rest of the cytosol, but they exist as a sort of a droplet of, of protein, sometimes with lipids involved, and they form this sort of droplet that exists in the cytoplasm. So they're all sort of teaming up together so, but there are many other candidates. I mean, uh, for example, the prion, uh, the cellular prion protein has been reported to be a, a receptor for beta ligamers. And there are many people that believe firmly that the prion protein is a, is a receptor. Uh, F2B, which is another uh, protein, synaptic protein, has been shown to interact with the beta ligamers. There are many, many, there are like 20 some uh, candidate receptors that have been published so far. No, I agree that because of, you know, uh, my, my own lab, you know, our research, we also have been studied about the prion protein as an oligo receptor. And, uh, you know, when we initiated that, that project, we were kind of skeptical, you know, whether that's the real receptor or not. But our data clearly show that a prion, prion receptor is uh, partly responsible for the oligo beta toxicity, even we didn't look at whether that's a high molecular weight or low molecular weight. But like I agree, with, I agree with you. The point is kind of a very complicated matter. But my my view is that you know probably they are all receptor different type of receptor we have identified so far. Probably they are all kind of you kind know, of doing so in that way, or maybe they kind of can you just mentioned that you know they kind of come together and they make some structure. You know you mentioned the intracellular, but also in the, that plasma membrane, like a member surface area, maybe something happened. So uh, it's kind of a little bit a less specific way to activate all the receptor because you know, our own research demonstrate that uh, we published the data, we show that the uh, inhibition of pre-protein partly, partially uh, reduced oligomerase toxicity in brain, but we haven't reached all like a hundred percent recovery, not all the time. And then I think other research, I have looked at other research too, like for example, like NMDA receptor, I think they also showed a very similar outcome you know, they always show like maybe like 50% or 30% of recovery of the toxicity. So I think that data probably suggesting us that, you know, or maybe this is kind of a multiple receptor involved or multiple mechanism involving, like we, you know, talk about it. So maybe that's why, you know, we only take the one pathway. We only gonna see the only the partial kind of, kind of prevention or the recovery in here. Yeah. And then if you want to make things really more, even more complicated than they already are, uh, until recently, tau was considered to be an intracellular component of the pathway, of the amyloid cascade pathway. And uh, to, uh, it, tau was envisioned to be perhaps a consequence of amyloid beta, and, but still to, to affect many dysfunctional events within cells as well. But now, this vision has totally changed by what we learned about the existence of tau ligamers, uh, which can actually be 
transferred from cells to cells. They can be exported and, and um, they are found extracellularly. They can be involved in spreading of the disease to different brain areas. They can bind, they can bind to totally a, a totally different set of receptors. Nobody knows really uh, what they bind to yet. So uh, it's a very complicated disorder. No wonder we haven't come up with a treatment for it yet because it's not a single target disease. You know, there are multiple receptors that are involved in amyloid beta, probably multiple receptors involved in the binding of tau oligomers as well. So it's um, it's not an easy task. Do do these elements interact directly with microglia? Because the, the pro-inflammatory response of microglia, you, you've written about the fact that a lot of these non-cognitive um, symptoms of, of AD that are more related to mood and affect, that they may have some common microglial mechanisms with more of the cognitive stuff. So is there a direct, is that a point of, of interaction that, that we know about? Yeah, I'd say definitely. Direct I think, interaction. Oh yeah. I mean, we, we ourselves published, but other people have shown this as well. Uh, we published studies showing uh, five years ago, we published a journal or a science paper showing that oligomer, A-beta oligomers directly activate uh, microglia in culture. So there are no neurons, no astrocytes. There is a pure microglial culture. You add oligomers to those cultures and the microglia, boom, they, they respond to those oligomers by producing uh, nitric oxide, by producing IL-1 beta, by producing TNF-alpha, and secreting those pro-inflammatory mediators to the medium. And in vivo, by injecting oligomers, we find that those same cytokines are uh, upregulated by, by oligomers. So, and, and if we block uh, microglial activity with, uh, for example, minocycline, or by depleting microglia with a drug that kills microglia specifically, we can actually show that this, these cytokines are no longer produced in response to a beta oligomers. So clearly, microglia are direct targets. There can also be a lot of communication between neurons and microglia and astrocytes. And this is, I think, possibly the hottest area. I would, I would venture to say that this is perhaps the, the hottest area in research right now in Alzheimer's, understanding how neurons, which are always thought to be the uh, most spectacular cells in CNS, how they interact with these other spectacular cells, which are microglia and astrocytes, and how that helps memory, but can also lead to memory dysfunction when that goes, you know, crazy. In right. The, this, again, this artificial distinction between pro-inflammatory being good or bad and anti-inflammatory being good or bad, it totally breaks down because prolonging inflammatory effects is actually really good for myelination, remyelination. I guess there, I mean, of course, there's some adaptive stuff that's really important, but then again, there are all these I mean, this ISRIB, this, uh, the, the ISR inhibitor is just, has blown up and is just incredibly therapeutic in your hands for resolving. Yeah, well, many people have shown that ISRIB is very good at, uh, therapeutically speaking, in, in animal models of trauma, for yes. example, in TDI. Uh, there is a great paper by uh, Mauro Costamatioli, who's also from Texas, from Baylor, uh, there is work uh, in vanishing white matter disease. There's work in prion disorders by uh, Giovanna Malucci's group in England. Uh, so there, ISRIP has been shown to be very effective therapeutically in, in, in mice, of course. 
the, the, the challenge is going to be, and then we found it in, in Alzheimer's in our hands. So the challenge is going to be whether one can actually administer ISRIT safely to, to people, especially considering that Alzheimer's is a chronic disorder. So it would not be a matter of, of giving ISRIT for a few days, but rather for many years. So is it safe to do something like that? Can we come up with other drugs that have a similar effect, but are safer and less toxic, for example? So those are challenges that I think uh, the, the proteostasis uh, area is now trying to address. I want to end on, um, on this idea of, of the fact that Alzheimer's is so difficult to mat, I mean, we can't prevent it because there are no early markers. It's difficult, or is that true? Last time I checked, I mean, are there uh, biomarkers at this stage? I mean, well, yeah, there, have been, there has been an amazing disease. development of, of the use of phosphorylated tau in the blood, in plasma, as a biomarker. This is something really very recent. You know, uh, a year ago, uh, papers were published uh, showing that in addition to looking at tau in the CSF, which has been done in, in, uh, for many years now, but it's very cumbersome. You need to do a lumbar puncture. So to, prior to, to disease onset, these would be, these are no, early no, biomarkers? Yeah. No, yeah. prior, well, it depends on what you define as disease onset. And that's another point. Yeah. You know, <laughs> when you first see biomarkers changing in Alzheimer's, it's probably already late. Uh, the earliest, the better, of course. Right now, if you wait for a person to really show uh, PID uh, positive plaques in the brain or, or even uh, uh, tau deposits by PET, by PET scanning uh, in the brain, it's probably too late. So by looking at what goes on in plasma, uh, it's not only much easier, but you can actually do follow-ups, you know, look at that kind of uh, preventive, preventatively. Uh, you know, if you have a history, family history of Alzheimer's, or if you're beginning to have subjective memory complaint, which is those little forgetfulnesses that we all occasionally have, but if it gets to be a little more often than the normal, then you can uh, presumably get one of these tau plasma tests and, and see if tau is, is acting up in your plasma or not. And uh, so that, will, that is already opens a window into earlier detection. But perhaps, and I think this is one thing that Yangon is quite interesting as well uh, in relation to um, his work on metabolism. Perhaps by improving metabolism, we can actually prevent or delay the onset uh, of Alzheimer's. If not prevent, if, if we can delay it for 10 years, that's already a tremendous bonus. And maybe we can do that uh, by adopting a healthier lifestyle. You know, uh, watching a little better what we eat, uh, preventing diabetes, preventing obes obesity, exercising. We have published work showing that there's a specific hormone that's released by muscle uh, upon physical activity that prevents memory impairment in mice. Uh, so perhaps physical activity, a combination of all these things, you know, social interaction, which of course is harder to do during the pandemic, but this is not going to last forever, I hope. And, uh, and, you know, uh, keeping your brain active in general. So I would say these common sense things that we sometimes neglect. You know, it's easy to go on a really Western diet and forget that it's not, not healthy. You know, eating, eating fast food every day 
is definitely not healthy for your brain as it's not healthy for your, your muscle, for your adipocytes, for your liver. So whatever is not good for the body is not going to be very good for the brain and vice versa. What's good for the, for the body can actually help your brain. So I think there is hope for prevention as well. So that would have been a beautiful note to end on, but as always, I'm going to ruin it by, by just saying one more, one more thing. Um, so your the cell signaling paper, which I haven't seen in PubMed, that's forthcoming. The, is, science signaling. Oh, be science signaling. paper? Yes. The history paper? Yeah, that's yeah. science signaling uh, two months ago. Oh, it's yeah. in the, it's a, I haven't, I, I wasn't able to locate it. Um, okay. Anyway, so what was super compelling about this in, in your acute model, not only are you able to prevent um, memory loss through these through the ISRIB treatment, but you're also able to, re to rescue memory. And I know that it's a huge leap and you know the model, these are sort of things that are constrained by the model, but that seems to me, is the kind of thing that people are going to run with potentially that there is a way, you know, barring complete cell loss, that there is a way to sort of kick things back into gear to get, you know, the machinery, the microtubules and the, whatever it is that is needed to create synapse could potentially be rescued at some early phase, you know, sort of maybe through a combination of delaying onset of the disease through healthy living and then potentially sort of slowing things and then rescuing whatever has happened when we get a, a good marker. I know, I mean, I, again, I know you're gonna be very cautious about this because it's so model delimited, but can you just say something about what the feasibility, how people should be thinking about this in terms of rescue versus prevention? <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely need to go slow in this and be very cautious, as you said, but uh, you know, being a biochemist myself, of course, uh, my uh, first uh, uh, initiative would be to look for a, a drug and a way to uh, really uh, turn back time. You know, if your brain is not functioning well, can you do something, add something that will rescue it? And I think the paper that I uh, uh, that came out uh, a week ago by Ana Maria Cuervo from New York, uh, showing that uh, uh, autophagy can actually be uh, rescued uh, turn the time can they act, actually turn back uh, by adding a specific compounds that improves autophagy in models where autophagy is disrupted. Yeah, the word rejuvenate is being used. Rejuvenate, yeah. yeah. So that's a, I think I would I would think I don't think they use that term in their paper, but that's what I would say that they've managed to rejuvenate autophagy, uh, which is a, an essential component of proteostasis, uh, uh, by adding a specific chemical compound. So I think ISRIB or something related to ISRIB holds good promise. But as you pointed out, you know, mice are very far away from humans. It's very easy to cure disease in mice. You know, there are literally hundreds. Especially when you created it, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. There are hundreds of examples of drugs and treatments, uh, either pharmacological or non-pharmacological, which work very well in mice. Mice promptly recover from whatever illness you induce them to have, but that they do not translate to humans. So the, the major bottleneck is translation. And that's again, where I think the, the non-human primate model might fit very nicely in the story. Maybe, uh, of course, you're not gonna do screening with those models because there's only so many models you can, so many uh, non-human primates you can use in a given experiment. 
Uh, they have to be very carefully monitored and, and it's a tremendous infrastructure required. But for those drugs that really you want to put your money on, you know, because they work superbly in mice and you think they might actually translate into humans, maybe that the monkey model would be a good way to bridge that. So that's something we have um, been trying to do as well. I just want to add one point that you know, my idea to regarding the animal model, like you explained, I think I, your direction is great. Like I also did your edition study in the monkey, that was great. And then I believe that you are now moving the preclinical clinical trial or clinical trial pace, I guess, that probably you guys are working on it. But addition to that, I think the main issue for the animal model now, like including your model, is that it's still we are very, you know, like you said, the mouse and human difference, of course, that's the case. But more importantly, all the mouse model or the, maybe the monkey model, it doesn't recapitulate all the things happening in the Alzheimer's disease at all. Like, for example, like, you know, amyloid pathology and the tau pathology and then something else, you know, all combined. So maybe I, I think the better approach or you know, maybe that's probably a more uh, richer idea and then a uh, uh, more efficacy study. Like, for example, like your ESRI study, uh, maybe you can try that. I know that you know you you mentioned that you know that compound already tested in the many different conditions is highly effective. So maybe it's just to be that uh, protein metabolism and that kind of general mechanism. I totally agree with you that because all the evidence indicates that the metabolic change is kind of like you know very important critical mechanism to causing neurodegeneration. So maybe we can try you know any compound we develop idea if it's not specifically targeting like for example like a beta vaccination. If we just target the some cell mechanism underlying it, then probably can, we should try in the multiple direction, like a model design, like you know, APP uh, mouse model, like you have it, and then also of course the, you know the genetic model, and then also you know tau mouse model too. We could test that way or inflammation model or some other model we can develop like a tram two model like that. So if the compound is working uh, equivalent equivalently, that all Modern overall, then I think probably we could have a better idea whether this compound is eventually going to be translatable to the human. You know, I think I, I understand that that's going to be the shortcoming at that point, but I think that's I think that that's that that probably that we can now we can do because we don't have you know the such animal model now. So maybe at least we can try the way to validate that uh, which, which, you know, that target and the compound might be eventually working the human. Everyone's running for the patents now, right? After, <laughs> um, thank you. Did you want to, did you want to end on something, Sergio? Sorry, did I preempt oh, you? I think we've covered a lot of ground here. So yeah, uh, unless there are any specific issues that you would like to have addressed. Then, yeah. I think I talked too much. But thank you. Thank you for, for well, joining thank us. Thank you all so much. Super fun. Uh, thank you, Sergio, uh, Chris, Hyungan, and I'm Selma Karashi. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Mm -hmm.